some of our charity members, uh, Christina, can you get Dr. Sag to come up here? So for the next talk, we'd like to apply some of the specific information that you've heard about newer antiretrovirals and older antiretrovirals in some cases. Joe Aaron probably knows as much about antiretroviral therapy as anybody in the United States who's been involved in the development of many of the drugs. Uh, he has a big patient population at UNC. In UNC, they really have a terrific ID division that's made many contributions to HIV pathogenesis, prevention, and treatment. So we're very pleased to have Joe as a regular member of our uh, lecturer group here. But as part of the panel, we have Mike Sag, we have Deb Benader from the Washington VA, and we have Sebley Kasai. And Sebley is particularly notable in that I mentioned before the developmental CFAR is very proud of the fact that newer people are coming into the district. Sebley, uh, trained at Mount Sinai and Stanford and has recently joined the Georgetown faculty and she is developing a late-stage liver uh, program at both DC General and at Georgetown so that we can focus some of our hepatitis C treatments on the patients who are the most difficult to treat. So if you have any patients who fit into that, I'm sure Sebley would be interested in uh, talking to you. But now we're talking about HIV. So Joe, we're very pleased to have you back. All right, well, thanks, everybody. Um, we, have, we have lots of time, um, lots of smart panelists. Um, Dr. Mazur made, a, made a, uh, a UNC Duke joke last night at dinner, and I'm, I still have to figure out how to get him back. Um, I haven't figured that out. So the idea here is, like, this is audience participation, and it's panel participation. These are cases. There are some didactic slides, but we can go through those quickly if, if the point's already been made. Um, also. I think for almost every um, choice, I've put something else. So if you're a person that pushes your button and something else, I'm relying on you to come to the microphone and say what that something else was. So the microphones are open, and, and you all can be part of this uh, uh, process. And I encourage you to be part of the process. Um, these are my um, uh, conflicts um, updated uh, very recently. Um, I just um, met with the people uh, from AbV, which is a spin-off of Abbott, about their hepatitis C work, and I, I'm sure we'll hear more about that this afternoon. Um, these are the objectives uh, for today. Uh, so um, uh, we're going to talk about various different um, clinical scenarios. It's all HIV. There's a there's a panel later on for um, HCV, so this is all going to be HIV uh, directed. Um, and then I have a couple of questions kind of to start. Um, so uh, in the diagnosis of HIV infection, uh, in acute HIV infection, which of the following tests are likely to be positive? So go ahead and, and vote, I hope. Oh, good. Okay, good. We'll keep going. We'll talk about these at the end. Um, this is um, treatment of integrase inhibitor experienced patients. This is going to be our last case. So which of the following statements is true about dolutegravir? And obviously, you may not know the answer, but um, 
this is the point of going through the case. Hopefully, we'll get to it. So, dalitegravir is active against all HIV-infected variants that are resistant to raltegravir and elvitegravir. Dalitegravir has limited activity. Dalitegravir retains full or partial activity. Um, and dalitegravir will be given once daily in integrase inhibitor experienced patients. So, go ahead and vote here. But don't, don't feel bad, because Mike did not cover this yet. Okay, great. Um, maybe you guys have already been reading about dalutegravir. Um, <laughs> maybe we don't have to get to that last case. Very good. Um, all right. So, um, when to start? Is this still a question? So here's our first case. Um, I hope. Okay, so our first case is RJ, 21-year-old black man who has sex with men, uh, multiple partners who presents with a penile discharge, and he has a gram, has gram-negative cocci on gram stain. Um, he's diagnosed with uh, gonorrhea, um, but when you speak to him, he also has had a couple of weeks of fever and fatigue. You notice some small cervical uh, lymph nodes bilaterally, um, and a small, modestly painful ulcer on his uh, tongue. Um, just a single punched out ulcer. He's dark skinned, but he may have a faint rash. Um, he has no rash on his palms or soles, and you don't see any other um, skin, genital, or perirectal lesions. His most recent sex was um, receptive and inserted anal sex two weeks ago uh, with two partners of unknown HIV status. Um, so, um, here's our first question. In addition to an RPR, an HSV, PCR of that thing in his mouth, throat and rectal swabs, or GC and chlamydia, what additional tests would you do? Um, so why don't you go ahead and vote, and then we'll let the panel uh, discuss what they would do. And there's, there's no right answer to, to any of these. So, uh, it's more to uh, figure out what people are doing. Great. All right. Um, comments, Stephanie? Yeah. Any thoughts on what you would do? Um, sure. I, I, I agree with uh, the audience that I would get a rapid HIV test and an HIV RNA PCR. So in general, my thinking with um, um, the RNA is that I would expect for it to be positive on average within five to six days with uh, viremia being present prior to antibody or even antigen detection. Uh, using the typical panels. I do think that the fourth generation EIAs are interesting, and so a couple of weeks into uh, acute infection, you may have a positive antigen test, and I think that is very exciting for places where you may not be able to do a uh, rapid an HIV RNA test. Um, the third generation EIA I would expect to be positive approximately by about 21 days now uh, after infection, but um, acutely what you will get as positive is your RNA PCR. Who um, here, just out of curiosity, um, has the fourth generation EIA available? Is that your standard test? You, you may, it may be your standard test, you may not, not know it, potentially. Um, okay, because the CDC is definitely going to come out with specific guidance around the fourth generation uh, test, though I, I do agree completely. If you really uh, suspect uh, acute infection, then the most sensitive test is. Mike, any comment that you want to add? I agree. I think just to be specific, so the fourth generation has both an antibody and an antigen sort of platform. So you're getting the P24 antigen at the same time. And our emergency room has brought that into play. And they're doing testing on everyone 
uh, who hasn't tested positive already. So it's really very important. Yeah. And so, do, I'm sorry, Joe, do you think that there's an advantage in getting a uh, uh, RNA-PCR over the fourth generation? Yeah, I'll have a slide up? that I, I think uh, Sibley said it exactly correctly. There is, there is a very um, relatively short window between when the um, RNA is positive and then the P24 antigen becomes positive. And I have a slide in a minute that will pretty much uh, say exactly what you said, uh, but we'll be able to look at it. Um, okay, so um, uh, I think everybody's on board with this being a, a possible acute infection case, so let's keep going. Uh, okay, so a rapid test for HIV antibody is negative, as predicted, um, as is the RPR, which is good, uh, and all the other tests for GC and chlamydia on, on throat and rectum, except for, of course, the urine was positive for GC, um, he was sent home uh, with appropriate uh, treatment of GC, and the next morning, his fourth generation EIA is positive. Which of the following statements is true? So this has already been answered, so um, we expect everyone to get this one right. Um, this is a false positive test, and the patient's not HIV-infected. This is uh, his HIV rapid antibody was falsely negative, and the patient is chronically infected. This patient likely has a positive P24 antigen and is acutely infected or something else. So go ahead and vote. I can't do any of these songs, Mike. Did you know about yeah, it, it, yeah. it's, it's like that. All right. We have very good listeners. So the post-lunch um, <laughs> senescence hasn't set in yet, I guess. Um, perfect. That's exactly right. So, um, We'll keep going. This is good because we've got through all the cases. So here's here are the data just to, to, to look at. Um, the um, obviously the I don't know which one to point to, but the obviously the first thing that, that comes up is the HIV RNA. Um, and, and there is this little bit of time here uh, between when RNA is positive and when the P24 antigen comes up. Uh, and then finally, HIV antibody um, comes up third here. And just as um, I think um, Sebley quoted the days almost exactly correctly, she might have said 21, this one says 22. She's probably right, and the slide's probably wrong. Um, but you can see there, there is a bit of a gap um, between when the RNA is first positive and when the um, uh, P24 is positive. And I'll, I'll, I'll go over the test in just a second so everybody understands the fourth generation test. But I think it's critical that you understand it. So just as Mike said, um, there, again, there, there is a, um, wait if I could point on the slide, but I can't. Um, so most EIA tests, right, only capture the antibody. Uh, but, in, but in this particular test, there's both antigen present and, um, uh, excuse me, there, this test can, detect both antigen and antibody. Um, so uh, here you can see that the, there are two separate uh, detection mechanisms. So if the antigen's present, um, it's captured by an antibody, and then a fluorescent antibody is tagged on and it lights up. Or if the antibody's present, so this is the patient's antibody here, if the antibody's present, then there's a, uh, a fluorescent antigen that's tagged to it, and the assay lights up. Now, there is one problem with the fourth generation assay, um, because it lights up whether there's antigen there or antibody there. 
So if you get a fourth generation test and it's positive, you actually don't know whether it was the antigen or the antibody. Um, so you don't know whether the person is acutely infected or not. You just know that they're positive for either antigen or antibody. So um, the recommendation is going to be, and what our group is doing, and I think probably most academic centers, is to actually do a rapid test, a rapid antibody test. So if the antibody test is positive, the rapid antibody, um, and the fourth generation is positive, then the person probably has chronic infection or they could have early infection. However, if the fourth generation is positive, but the antibody is negative, that means the patient had antigen. So um, uh, it was the antigen that lit up the test, so the patient is likely to be acutely infected. So um, I would ask you to go back to your testing center and, and, and talk to them about which test they're using. The, Fourth generation um, uh, test is a, a pretty rapid test. It's, it can be done literally overnight or even um, uh, over several hours. So um, it is a test where you can get results pretty quickly. Uh, but you do have to do a second test to, to deconstruct whether it's an antibody or antigen that's uh, uh, causing the test to be positive. Comments? Henry or Mike or Deborah, anything to add to that? Do you want to say something, uh, Joe, about uh, following up with a Western blot? What, how does the fourth yeah, generation so the, work? So the Western blot is going to go the, the way of the dinosaur, I think, um, and become uh, extinct. Um, you, you do have to follow up. So one thing we learned kind of the hard way is that the fourth generation is not quite as, um, uh, there's a false positive rate. There's about a 1% false positive rate to the fourth generation test. Um, and we just had a patient who was actually screening, high-risk patient, he was screening for a PrEP study, um, and his fourth generation was positive, and we figured, well, he's high risk, um, and he's likely to be acutely infected because his antibody was negative. But it turned out it was a very low optical density, just above the level of detection. We got an RNA just as, um, uh, uh, would be suggested, and his RNA was negative, so it was actually a false positive. So it's about 1% of, um, of uh, fourth generation tests can be false positive. And again, you know, if you're testing a low prevalence population, then, then many of your positive tests are going to be um, uh, uh, false positives. Uh, so the predictive value positive in a low prevalence setting is going to be relatively low, so you have to be careful. I think most people would confirm a positive fourth generation with either an antibody test or a viral load. Um, because if, they, if the fourth generation is positive, you get an antibody test. Uh, any, any ELISA, you get a regular uh, a third generation or you could do a rapid test, so that would confirm it. And if it's the P24 that's positive, um, a Western blot won't really help you um, because there won't be an antibody to detect. So I think most people would confirm um, a fourth generation with either a second antibody test or an HIV RNA. That's how it would be confirmed. And what do you do at UNC? Uh, at UNC, we do a, a, a rapid antibody test, and if that the fourth generation is positive and the rapid antibody test is um, negative, then we do an RNA. And I learned that because we use LabCorp for this prep study that we're doing, they do exactly the same thing. Um, so if the uh, fourth generation is positive, and the rapid antibody is negative, they do an RNA. And they actually don't report the test until the RNA is back. So. One question. Sure, go ahead. Could your patient have HIV2? Could your patient have HIV2? 
Um, I'm going to have to like phone a friend because um, uh, I am not 100% sure. Um, I think the answer in this case is no um, because the um, P24 antigen test is specific for HIV. So we decided he was fourth generation positive, so um, uh, he could not have HIV2 in this setting. Um, but, um, and I think um, what I don't know is um, that, and the multi-spot antibody test does detect one and two, so that would have to, um, and they can separate them. So I don't think this patient could have, um, but I, I will need to check for sure about the fourth generation, unless someone on the panel knows. I don't, I don't think, it, I don't think P24 antigen is detected. Uh, I don't think HIV2 P24 antigen is detected by this assay, but I'll, I'll find out and let, um, let Donna know and then she can let everybody know. Um, okay, let's keep going. Oh, so this is just, uh, 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 I think, making the point that uh, uh, Sebley made, and I won't really go through it, but if you just focus on the very bottom bullet. Uh, so these were a panel of specimens that were tested by the fourth generation. This is published work from several years ago. Uh, and they had 35 acute specimens that were RNA positive and antibody negative. And you can see that the fourth generation is not perfect in that setting. 80% um, were positive because 80% had P24 antigen, but seven were not. And if you look on the next slide, you can see the RNA values. So RNA was positive in these patients. And you can see the RNA values are typically low. Um, uh, so it will, um, it's during that ramp up phase where the RNA is starting to go up. Um, there is that window of two, three, four days um, where the um, viral load, uh, the RNA would be positive, but the fourth generation uh, would still be negative. And so just as Sebley said, if you strongly suspect acute HIV infection, the best test, um, I think, is to get a, a, a RNA test if, if you have a strong suspicion. And certainly a man having sex with men who comes in with gonorrhea and also has systemic symptoms that seem out of proportion to with gonorrhea, that would be someone who you would test. Okay. So, um, this actually, this question has already been asked and answered by Dr. Mazur, so he's ahead of me. Um, we go over everybody's talk except the cases the night before, so these guys are seeing the cases just like you are. Um, uh, and it's relatively reassuring to me that they're asking questions that then I have. That means I've, we're, we're thinking alike. Um, but you, I'll let you guys answer this. So this is, um, uh, you recognize he has a... Uh, acute HIV infection, and remember, you got a positive fourth generation and a negative rapid antibody. Um, what's the best confirmatory test here? So uh, you could do another antibody, um, you could do a Western blot, you could do an RNA, or you could just wait two to four weeks um, uh, and either do a Western blot or, or an antibody test uh, or something else. So go ahead and vote here. You guys are great. This is really very, very, very satisfying. Um, now, now it gets a little harder. Um, so, uh, just as Dr. Sedley said, you asked for a, um, uh, Dr. Kasey said, sorry, um, you asked for an RNA test, um, and you also send a genotype at the same time, because you now know the patient has HIV infection, and the RNA comes back uh, 3.4 million. So what do you do now? You counsel the patient on risk reduction and you refer him to a local uh, Ryan White clinic as he has no insurance. 
you refer them to a clinical trial for patients with acute HIV infection, you wait for a resistance test uh, results and then begin ART, should be a capital T. Um, you begin ART as soon as possible or you do something else. Go ahead and vote. We have a mix here. Um, interesting. Uh, so um, the uh, small percentage of people are going to refer them on to care, uh, which uh, uh, might be reasonable. Um, uh, almost a quarter of people are going to refer them to a clinical trial for acute HIV infection, and that presumes there's one available. Um, uh, a third or so are going to wait for the uh, resistance test and then begin ART, and then 40%, um, almost 40%, going to begin ART as soon as possible. Mike said, what do we do here? I you, would, can, you can give the guidelines answer first, because I'm going to switch it around a little bit. I don't remember the exact guidelines yeah, answer. I, I can tell you, but I can tell you my answer, which I think is the guidelines, which is I would start right away. And yeah. uh, the reason for that is that this is, I wouldn't call it a medical emergency, but this is where you're going to get, if you're ever going to get bang for the buck with antiretroviral therapy starting early, this is the person. And you could say, well, why not wait for the resistance assay? Well, you could, and you're going to probably wait about five to seven days minimum. But during that five to seven day period, there's a lot of biology going on that's not in favor of the host. And the chances of this patient having resistant virus to something right off the bat is going to be at most 15%. So you got an 85% chance of having wild type virus in general. And so why not go for it? You can adjust the regimen after the first seven days, but there's so much biology going on here in terms of the gut lymphoid architecture being attacked viciously by the virus and uh, other, almost every organ system is, is having this onslaught of inflammation. So I would start as soon as possible. Just, just to uh, debate Dr. Sag, could you tell me two things? Number one, what is the clinical evidence of that manifest patient? Number two, since you're a famous academician, why would you not send the patient to a clinical trial on the assumption that the clinical trial would respect the need to rapidly enroll? Well, I didn't, you on the spot. I didn't have a clinical trial open at the time at our site, so that's why I wouldn't refer, because I don't think I'm going to put them on an airplane, send them somewhere. Um, although some, I'm sure there's an NIH protocol that they, NIH would pay for that. That was my point. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Um, we don't have airlines in Birmingham. And uh, the Greyhound takes so long to get there that uh, I thought he might be in trouble. Uh, but yeah, re referring for a trial is, is correct. I was really talking about answers three and four. Um, the other, the evidence is not a randomized trial. And just to get on a soapbox for a minute because I was accused of being subdued earlier. Um, you know, a randomized trial is nice for certain things, but it's not a requirement to make a decision. And you can't do a randomized trial on every clinical thing. And so, you know, the classic story is, do you need a randomized trial to show that jumping from an airplane, a parachute works? And the answer is no, you don't need that. In this case, a randomized trial could be done. They've been attempted, but they failed miserably because the actual time from of detection varied a lot, whether it was really acute infection versus early infection. And so it's hard to get these folks studied in a large enough randomization. Plus the fact, I would argue that I don't have a whole lot of equipoise about deferring therapy in someone like this because of the 
clinical evidence that does exist. It's biologically driven, a lot of it that actually came out of NIH and the uh, Laboratory of Immune Regulation that did biopsies of gut and other things. And I think the evidence is strong enough to where I would be comfortable uh, making a clinical judgment and treating. Deborah, do you have any, you want to comment? Sure. The other, the other element of this is prevention in the community and is in the test and treat mode. Now, so, it, so most key would be the patient himself. But the second element of this is this is someone who's already demonstrated that they have high-risk behaviors. Now, it's quite clear, however, that knowing that they have an HIV diagnosis will dramatically drop those high-risk behaviors, but it doesn't, certainly doesn't eliminate them. And this is a patient who, um, in terms of HIV in the community, would, it would be better to treat early. Yeah, I think there's some um, terrific models of um, the impact of acute infection on transmission in the epidemic, and there's a lot of debate about it, how important acute infection is, but um, certainly in some models, as much as 20 to even 40 percent of onward transmission is, is um, uh, acute infection is responsible for that. So, so I think that, and, and just as you said, by, almost by definition, they're involved in the behaviors that, that um, are, uh, are uh, leading to transmission. So I think that's a really uh, important reason. Um, I think, obviously, that you have to choose what's best for the patient. Right. Um, it's certainly a, 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 a potential uh, benefit. Well, you know, tying together to Dr. Treisman's talk that the guy who comes in and has this consequence from unprotected sex is probably like the person with acute food poisoning where they said they're never going to eat again. And so I'm not sure if the models took into account somebody feeling that badly and perhaps changing their behavior. I think some people feel that way. And I have patients who, you know, have stopped having sex because they are so concerned about you know, transmission. But on the other hand, I've also had patients that go right back out and start doing exactly what they were doing because they're on that, you know, Madonna end of the spectrum uh, and, and um, they, they are just going to um, do what feels good at that time. But, but I think the points made were, were really good. Um, but we're going to go to the next slide. We're, this one we won't do. We're not going to do this one because I think Mike answered it. Basically, um, there are, let's say there is no clinical trial in your area and I think at least most of the people on the panel, except maybe Henry, uh, would be good. Would begin ART as soon as, soon as possible. Do you want to? you want to comment on that? Were you were you just pushing Mike, or were you suggesting we, we should wait? I was doing both. No, I wouldn't suggest you wait, but I would hope. I mean, there are clinical trials for acute infection. If there are some, they of course appreciate getting referrals, but there has to be an obligation then to make a rapid decision. Yeah. No, and and we we we, we had a a case very much like this just recently, and one of our um, more, um, uh, our newer coordinators was interviewing the patient, and they said, well, the patient's not sure, so they're going to come back in a week. And, and um, the, I went back to the patient and said, are you not sure about being in a clinical trial, or you're not sure about being treated? Um, and the patient was not sure about being in a clinical trial. I said, forget it. Don't be in a clinical trial, because I totally agree with Mike. I mean, it really is. The destruction of the um, of the uh, kind of intestinal immune system it really is a kind of a very much day-to-day -day process. I think we do from the studies done by Jason Brenchley and Danny Duak and the others. I think we saw the worst case scenario because those are typically symptomatic people. Um, uh, so it may not be that that um, the destruction is is so overwhelming and rapid in every single person, but 
um, I think it is, uh, it's, really there are two diseases. There's one that takes place over 8 to 12 weeks, and then um, after that, there, there's chronic infection. It, it, it really, after about 8 to 12 weeks, I think just about all the, all the um, uh, pathogenesis of acute infection has pretty much taken place. And there's some data that will come out, I think, over the next uh, year or so that will, I think, support that opinion. You know, Joe, I guess my point was just, I agree with that, it's completely plausible, but we have many plausible things in the past that have turned out not to be yeah, yeah, important. So I, I, I will show you a little bit of data, though, um, uh, that, that's not necessarily clinical. But that's hopefully what's going to come next, because you guys are really very, oh, okay, so um, we'll do this, and then I'll show you a little bit of data. So you decide to initiate antiretroviral therapy, so you have Mike Sag, you know, with the little horns sitting on your shoulder saying, you know, um, initiate therapy, what are you going to start? And here are your choices. Uh, two nukes and either boosted runivir or azanavir, a fixed-dose combination that includes efavirenz, a fixed-dose combination that includes L-vitegavir and cobacistat, two nukes and raltegavir, um, or the fixed-dose combination with ropivirine or something else. So go ahead and pick. Ah, excellent. Deborah, you want to you want to comment what what you would do in this setting? Remember, so you don't have a resistance test back yet. Sorry. So I think that there's several elements that would. I, I think what's easy is what we would eliminate, um, and we the rolpivirin containing regimen. I would feel, not feel confident about potency. I'm reluctant to use a twice-daily regimen when that's not necessary at this point, and things may change when dolutegravir is approved. Um, Strybald is in the realm of possibility. The triplets as a single, also once daily, is in the realm of possibility. Um, but I think that I would more likely lean towards a ritonavir-darunavir regimen for a couple of reasons. One is the... Um, the viral load and the height of the viral load. Others, there really has not been demonstration that a tripla compared to a boosted PI is um, less effective by any means and certainly is potent. Um, I am a little more concerned about the possibility of acquisition of a K103 in the community with a recent acquisition. So, in the scheme of uh, possibilities for this particular patient, I think that two, two nukes and um, boosted Darunavir. Yeah, um, I, in, in North Carolina anyway, about 15% of acute infections have 103N. Um, uh, so I, we actually showed that you can start with the, um, the fixed dose combination with the Favrins, provided you do exactly what Mike says. As soon as you get the resistance test back, if it turns out there is resistance, you can, you, you obviously modify the therapy. But I think um, in this case, um, uh, uh, you're very unlikely to have uh, a major proteasing inhibitor mutation. There, there might be a theoretical reason to use an integrase inhibitor. The, I agree with the twice daily. In the case of elvitegravir, remember the graph I showed where the viral load reduction was more rapid. I don't know how important that is. I don't know if, if it's just phenomena, but it, it, you will get more rapid control even against the PI. So I think either one or three are reasonable answers. I don't know how much resistance you're seeing de novo of integrase inhibitor. We haven't really been checking 
uh, routinely. Yeah, so I don't know the answer. I think I think the adherence issues for someone who's 21, newly diagnosed, is also pretty significant. So in terms of the dosage, uh, the fixed dose combination may kind of rise up a little bit higher, uh, simply because you know he's newly diagnosed, he's 21, and now you're putting him on what's supposed to be in quotes lifelong therapy. So it might make his adherence better and result in a better outcome for him. But um, I would be worried, again, my, my reflex would be to go with a boosted PI, but the adherence issues make me a little bit more, uh, may sway me. Yep, absolutely. You, you want to make it as simple as possible. I think, I think the issue of bilpivirine with that very, very high viral load, I think that's not really something that most people would, would, would go with. So let's keep going. I'll just show you some... Uh, uh, these are the DHHS recommendations for acute infection, um, and uh, they recommend treatment uh, for uh, offered to those with acute or early infection, um, though definitive data are lacking. So that's uh, uh, Dr. Mazur talking to us. Um, uh, they do uh, suggest, obviously, getting drug resistance testing, but if uh, um, uh, it can be initiated uh, before our resistance test results are available, and that perhaps a boosted PI should be used in that setting. So exactly what, what Deborah said. Um, the ISUSA, Melanie Thompson, and our group also uh, made specific recommendations. Um, uh, again, we said uh, that the um, uh, therapy should be offered. Uh, it may also benefit people who are symptomatic. Remember, he was symptomatic, though, though probably mildly so. And the other reasons are the ones that Mike uh, talked about. Um, and, and also Deborah added the, the issue of uh, decreasing transmission risk. And just to remind people, um, there is a randomized study that was just published last summer called SPARTAC, where uh, individuals with acute or early infection uh, though, uh, were uh, randomized uh, to either start therapy for 48 weeks and stop, um, just have standard of care, which was not to initiate therapy, or have therapy for 12 weeks and stop, and now, I don't think anybody in this panel would advocate starting therapy and then stopping. And this turned out, I think, more to be a biology experiment. But what they showed was that if you did give 48 weeks of therapy and then stop, your actual uh, decline, so if you just look um, at the, the time to an endpoint is this box up here, um, and an endpoint is a decline in um, uh, CD4 cell uh, to less than 350 or um, uh, clinical indication for initiation therapy, these, this line here is the folks that got 48 weeks of therapy and then stopped. And basically what it shows is you did alter the natural history of um, infection by slowing the progression. Again, I'm not advocating that, but I think it's kind of peripheral evidence, um, Henry, that, that treating early does somehow uh, change the biology. It's not the best evidence, but the, obviously the New England Journal thought it was um, uh, significant enough to, to, to publish this. Um, uh, and and, and I, I think there are other data that are similar. Um, the next slide, um, I hope, uh, are data from a very, very um, uh, ambitious study that's being done in Thailand where they're actually screening high-risk people um, twice weekly with RNA. So they're finding uh, people literally when their RNA is first positive, whether they're symptomatic or not. And FIBIC stages um, are, are staging based on whether you have antibody, whether you have antigen. And I just need you to focus here on that first um, uh, 
these first set of boxes. Phoebig one is someone who's RNA positive, um, but um, uh, antibody completely antibody negative. Next to their P24 negative, for that matter. And what they did is they looked. These uh, people were all treated very, very early, and they looked at the amount of DNA, HIV DNA, in their cells, and they showed two things. One is that the earlier you, you treated someone, the less total DNA, the less um, perhaps the the seeding of the reservoir uh, was um, interrupted or, or abbreviated. And then they looked at integrated DNA. Um, so these, this is actually HIV DNA that's clearly integrated within a, a CD4 cell. And you can see there was a, a marked difference in the amount of integrated DNA in uh, patients who um, were treated very, very early. So again, not proof of anything, but a suggestion that very early treatment has the potential to, to change um, uh, the biology of HIV, which I think was the point Mike was making. Go ahead. Trying to find here in this study, you're saying they tested them with RNA twice a week. Yep. So we know acute infection because we can show acute infection. But you're talking also in this area about early infection. Is yep. there exact data points that we're defining early infection? So if I have my patients during their yearly physical in a primary care practice in a suburban area, one year ago, during their physical, had an HIV test negative. Now it's a year later. They, I have five of them right now that tested positive in their yep. 40s. Um, two of them were couples, so it was a, a couple kind of thing. But is that an early infection? I had CD4 cells all above 500, yep. but I had viral loads uh, up to 400,000. Yep. So how are we defining early? That's my yeah, question. Yeah, I think that. I think early really doesn't matter, to be honest. I mean, I think those are all people that are likely chronically infected. One, one thing you can do is obviously you can ask them about kind of a severe viral illness that will help you pinpoint when they were infected, though not everybody has that. Most people do have fever, but, but not everybody does. Um, and, um, but I think kind of operationally those folks are, are, have, have chronic HIV infection that you detected early, which is to their advantage if we think of uh, Victor's talk this morning or Christina's talk, of, you know, all the advantages of treating early. But I think they're, they're not, I don't, this is my opinion, I don't think they're in some special window in terms of pathogenesis. I think that all that kind of crazy immune destruction has probably taken place. That, that's how I feel about it. I, I, you know, Mike, you may feel differently, but I, that's how I feel about it. So let's keep going because we're almost done and we've only done one case. Um, <laughs> uh, so these are the data on uh, um, uh, decreasing transmission. And I think everybody's seen these data, but Mike Cohen, he's my boss. He makes me put that slide in every talk that I give. Um, and, and this is actually a terrific study. If you haven't read it, this is in Science. It's actually published now in Science, where they took a region in um, South Africa and looked at ART coverage. So this is an ecological study, but it was a relatively closed region. And what um, uh, they showed basically is the more ART coverage there was over time, the less, the fewer transmissions that occurred in, in the region. And I'm going to just skip quick, quickly to the punchline here. Um, basically, they showed that when you got up to about 40% coverage of ARVs, they showed a, um, uh, about a 40% um, uh, to 50% decrease in the, in the hazard. I guess the, the dots right here, so it's about a 40% decrease in the hazard of uh, becoming HIV infected. So further evidence that treating a community leads to decreased transmission. So I, I would encourage you to look at this, 
study. Um, so here's our second case. Um, this is, um, again, uh, 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 I think right up uh, uh, Victor's alley here. This is a 61-year-old woman, uh, newly diagnosed with HIV. Her husband died of, quote, alcoholism four years ago. She's had not been sexually active at all since that time, um, but she was found to be HIV positive. She's completely asymptomatic. Um, she's not co-infected with hepatitis B or C, but um, she has uh, many of the um, uh, comorbidities of the older population in, in North Carolina. It, she's obese, she has diabetes, and she has hypertension. Um, she's attended multiple clinic visits uh, and is engaged in care. Um, she says she'll do whatever you say, doc, um, but is worried about adding additional medicine. She's already on um, uh, metformin and hydrochlorothiazide, and she doesn't want more medicines if um, she doesn't need them. Her viral load's 1,400, um, almost 1,500, and her CD4 counts 800. So, next question. Uh, so what would you recommend for EM? Uh, would you recommend therapy? Uh, yes, I would begin once her genotype was available. Yes, but I would wait several months, follow her viral load, blood pressure, and glycosylated hemoglobin. Um, no, I would wait until there was clear uh, progression, given that she's very likely to be a slow progressor, or I'm not sure. Um, go ahead and vote. There's no, no right answer. Great. Um, Henry, what are you doing here? You know, I have to say I'm ambivalent in that the long-term non-progressors have done well for a long period of time. And the evidence about accelerated cardiovascular disease and cerebrovascular disease, I think, is still not conclusive. So I think given the same concerns you had about acute infection, that there's concern about chronic inflammation, I would treat, but with hesitation, and I would certainly give the patient the option because we know by history, these patients can do well for a long period of time. Mike? I agree with the overall representation of the data. The difference is that most of those studies or those cases were in 30-year-olds, and this is a 61-year-old, and you're right, there are no data. But on the other hand, the data that do exist suggests that um, progression and in, in the inf effective inflammation on someone who's over the age of 50 is a little bit more pronounced. She's over 60. And I'm not sure exactly what we would be waiting for because uh, the concerns I have are, and Joe sort of left the hint when you introduced the case, but I don't know what the impact of inflammation is on neurocognitive function. A lot of this is asymptomatic. Perhaps if we did a neuro test, we would find that there would be some abnormalities. But even that aside, if you look at the work by Peter Hunt and Steve Deeks, that even among those with um, elite controllers, they still have a, a lot more inflammation than a non-infected person and a lot more inflammation than someone who's been put on therapy. So I would err on the side of treating her. And the fact that she said that she's willing to if we sort of said she should, I probably would um, lean towards advising her to start treatment. I, I don't disagree with you. I just disagree with you that over 60 is old. <laughs> Older. Oh. Older than 30. Older than 30. Yeah, I think that, um, that both people have made good points. Um, there, there were recent data presented by uh, Steve Grinspoon that was really uh, relatively uh, impressive, where he looked at not just slow progressors, uh, but elite controllers. 
and showed um, you know, progression of this kind of soft plaque, cardiovascular disease, uh, looking, uh, I think it was um, a CT scan, um, or I can't remember, CT or MR, but, he, but he was, uh, it was really quite remarkable. And, and it, it actually, in people who are suppressed on therapy, you, you don't see as much progression. So, um, and I, I, I purposely made this lady 61. Um, we forgot one thing. So there is the possibility of enrolling into a randomized clinical trial. trial. That is, yes. So that would be... There is. And, and, and there is that possibility. I, I wouldn't do it personally, but we can have that debate. Um, but I, um, I, I do want to keep going because I have at least one case where I need help. Um, one of my patients, that's the next case. So, um, so this is what um, the ISSA suggests in terms of starting therapy and certainly... Um, you know, above 500, it's B3, so we feel pretty strongly about it, and it's not really based on randomized evidence, and there is the trial that uh, Deborah uh, mentioned. Um, and um, I think uh, the ISCSA guidelines are unique in that we really do stress um, uh, older age as a criterion for uh, beginning therapy, uh, perhaps with a little bit more uh, emphasis than... Um, than um, uh, our, our typical recommendation. And then the DAHHS has similar uh, guidance in terms of greater than 500. I think everybody's aware of that. Um, and I'm going to skip. Um, I think there's quite a bit of evidence that people who C4 uh, is above 500 have better outcomes. And the best way to get someone C4 above 500 is to treat them um, when it is above 500. Um, and uh, I'm just going to skip through these. Um, we still don't do very well, unfortunately. You can see that in the US, uh, of all the countries sampled by Matthias Eger and his group, um, uh, the US actually has the highest CD4 at initiation, uh, but it's um, still, uh, well, this is several years old now, 2009, but it was um, uh, uh, 307. I know in Washington, there's a very, very uh, strong effort to get people in early into care, and the CD4 at initiation is rising, and, and um, uh, I, I was one of the people that drank too much wine last night, and therefore I didn't hear Henry's talk this morning. Um, so it, so it, he may have talked about that. Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I'm going to skip that slide, and we're going to keep going. Um, so um, all right, remember, here's our lady. She's newly diagnosed. So her BMI is 36.8, which is, you know, for North Carolina, that's kind of about average, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> we, have, we have a lot of very big people in our clinic now. It's kind of a remarkable to me who's been you know, doing this for 25 years. Um, her creatinine is normal, um, uh, and as are, are her AST and ALT. Her glycosylate hemoglobin is OK on metformin, not, not perfect. And uh, she does have some proteinuria. She has a wild type genotype. You can see her fasting lipids there. She's not yet on a statin, um, despite having a, a, a clear indication uh, for one. Um, would you get a bone density scan prior to starting therapy? This is a 61-year-old black woman. I forgot to mention that. Uh, she has uh, had three, uh, four pregnancies, three children, and has six grandchildren, um, which I guess isn't quite relevant to the uh, question. But um, uh, she is part of my grandma clinic. I have quite a few grandmas now. Um, so go ahead and vote here. Would you get a bone density scan, a DEXA scan, before starting treatment? Ah. 
<laughs> perfectly split. Oh, oh, eee. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go for it. We're, we're going to have to have a two-hour session. Tabli, <laughs> do, do you want to comment about whether you would? Um, sure. So on this lady, who um, chances are pretty high, I would be uh, using a tenofovir-based regimen, which has its uh, obvious issues with um, bone mineral density. I would err on the side of getting a baseline study on her. Um, uh, African Americans also tend to have uh, low vitamin D levels, so she certainly would be at risk for um, osteopenia at baseline, so I would want to know that. Yeah, yeah I, I'm going to go quickly. That is what's recommended. Now, I certainly don't always do that, but here are, these are recommendations put forward by a group of experts, including Grace McComsey, um, Todd Brown, who's uh, um, really incredibly knowledgeable. And, and basically, um, you know, the indications for, for, for a DEXA are um, essentially greater than 50 years old in, in their mind, um, or if you're a woman uh, postmenopausal, or if uh, you have a history of a, a, a non-traumatic uh, fracture. So um, she would certainly fit their criteria um, for um, getting a bone density scan. Um, again, I think uh, Glenn, who's on his conference call now, um, might argue that you know there's so many things that we have to do. How high a priority is this? But but I agree. I, she's someone who I would be considering a tenofovir-based regimen on, and and I probably do want to know her her bone bone density. Um, so we did get one, um, and she has osteopenia, but not osteoporosis. Um, if you find osteopenia, you should certainly make sure that the patient doesn't have a secondary cause. One of the common ones, Sebley's already mentioned, which would be a low vitamin D level. Um, uh, and, uh, but there are also other uh, potential causes. Uh, alcohol is, a, uh, unfortunately, a, a cause of um, uh, low bone mineral density. Um, so it's important to uh, investigate. Um, but you do decide to start therapy, so you're in the Mike Sag camp. Um, I'm just updating you on the numbers. She is HLA-B5701 negative. Her, M, her uh, creatinine clearance is 80 by MDRD, um, and she has wild-type virus. So which NRTI combination are you going to choose? So remember, she has diabetes, hypertension, she has hondochlorothiazide, she has um, metformin, or maybe you wouldn't choose one at all. Ah, I don't know the right answer here. Um, Deborah, what are you choosing here out of curiosity? I'm not quite sure. What so perhaps when, we, um, when dolutegravir is approved, I think that would be um, a possible regimen that would be appropriate. Um, in the interim, I would probably still go with Truvada. I would look very carefully at assuring that her calcium vitamin D was adequate and follow. I think it's a judgment. I, I probably would not put her on zidovudine because of concerns out of anemia, and I can't see a good reason to use that unless some payer told me I had to because they were generic. Um, I think I think it's a toss-up between tenofovir FTC. The argument for it is more fixed dose combinations are available, and that would be good. Uh, her creatinine clearance is relatively normal. Her bone mineral density is down, but not not terrible, but the Abacavir 3TC will work nicely, and I don't personally think, I think at this point in time, the question about increased cardiovascular risk has mostly been resolved, I think, by the FDA publication uh, of the large number of people in randomized studies, and I think that 
pretty much uh, confirmed for me that I think that risk is it's perhaps there, but it's not significant. Uh, so I, I probably lean towards two, but I think either one are fine. Okay, I'm going to keep going um, just so we can get to at least to the third case. Um, so yeah, we did choose to offer FTC. Um, so what would you combine it with here? Um, and I'm not going to read the whole list. It's uh, most of the standard uh, therapies. Um, so uh, go ahead and, and look through the list and then and then vote. You know, when it, it's hard to see when on the screen. So, so the fixed dose combination with uh, uh, a a a, uh, a is the, is the winner. Um, uh, Henry, I don't have any uh, strong preference. I guess I would do the same, but uh, I'd mainly be interested in what the other three panel members think is a rationale. Stephanie, <laughs> you want to say? Well, Sure. So um, I guess the rationale would, is going for a once daily that's relatively well tolerated. Um, quite, I would maybe err on trying to find something that's a little bit, a little bit more lipid neutral for her, um, mm. mainly because uh, she does have her comorbidities. So that would swing me maybe away from efavirenze in this yeah, in this good. situation. So I would either go with the boosted. Uh, Adesanivir, Ritonavir with uh, Truvada or um, uh, Stribald would be an option for her as well. Um, if I really wanted to do a one pill, if she has high pill burden with her other medications. But I would really be aiming more to try to neutralize her metabolic complications with, mm -hmm. with starting treatment. Yeah, I, I think that this might be a good case for um, the ropivirine-based therapy. Her viral load's only 1,800. Yeah, that was, a, that was the answer I chose. Um, for all the reasons that were said. Plus, um, you know, this is something where, frankly, uh, if you did a randomized trial, you might find that tenofovir FTC alone might get her viral, viral load undetectable, although I wouldn't do that, I think, because it's not going to be across the board effective. But yeah, I think Wapivirine would be a nice choice. It, she's a woman who's worried about pill burden. She already told you that at the very beginning. She's on a lot of pills. So something fixed those combinations, something that's going to be more lipid friendly and it'll work. I think that's a good choice. And why would you not want to use the quad pill? My personal thought was because it has Cobacistat in it and uh, you're going to get some triglyceride, some, it's not as much as ritonavir, but you'll get some elevation there. and. Um, and there also be more possibility for drug-drug interactions overall. I think the, the other issue, you know, her creatinine clearance is 80. Uh, it's possible, I, you know, I can't do the math in my head, and I think Christina left, but if you bumped her creatinine by 0.2, which is certainly possible well within the range, you're going to get her, her calculated creatinine clearance, and we know it's not her GFR, is going to get into that 60. 50, 60 range. And unfortunately, you can't, like, tease apart the... The um, quad pill, you know, you can't take it apart. You have to actually change their therapy. Um, and she has diabetes; it, that's likely to get worse. And um, ropivirine does have a, a, a smaller effect on creatinine um, uh, secretion. Um, so I, I, I think, really, I think any choice there is perfectly reasonable. And we know raltegravir, even though it's twice daily, is very well tolerated. She's probably on metformin twice a day, so it's not like she's already taking. Um, uh, she's already taking a twice daily pill, so. I think any choice there is, is reasonable. And you could even wait for dolutegravir. Really, the drop-dead date from the FDA, I think, is um, 
uh, August 18th or 17th or something like that. So um, I think it's, you know, waiting a couple months in this lady is not, not going to be a big issue. Um, I do want to keep going. Um, I'm going to really, you guys know the DHHS guidelines. You know the um, uh, uh, ISUSA guidelines. I will point out that there is not a single NRTI sparing or nuke sparing regimen listed in either the DHHS guidelines or the ISUSA guidelines. So no one chose to not give nukes, but um, as yet we don't have enough data to, to, to recommend that. And then I was going to go through the whole ropivirine thing, but my only point was that above 100,000, there, there's risks to ropivirine. There is some risk of virologic failure. There's some increased risk of resistance. Um, I'm going to actually skip those slides. Uh, I'm going to go right through them. Uh, I'm happy to talk about them later. I'm going to be here um, for a while. Ooh, don't go. Keep, stay here. Okay, this is one I need help with. Um, so my, uh, my patient is a 35-year-old man who was diagnosed with PML, unfortunately, in September, and, but he's responded well to antiviral treatment. Um, he has some residual neurologic deficits, but, but he's much, much better. He's on tenofovir FTC and raltegravir twice daily. Um, his C4 cell count is now miraculously above 300. His viral load is less than 40, but detected. Um, he has a wife and he has three children, six, nine, six, eight, and 11. She's HIV negative and we just tested her with a rapid testing clinic and she remains negative. Um, they have not had sex since his diagnosis, but they wanted to discuss this with me. Um, they've never used condoms, they, they've never had to, and um, they only plan to have vaginal and oral sex. She's otherwise perfectly healthy. She's on no medications except uh, uh, birth control pills, which she chose to continue. Um, what advice would you give this couple? Um, they do not have any plans to have more children. Um, so one is resume having sex using condoms for vaginal sex, but not oral sex. Resume having uh, sex uh, using condoms and barriers for both oral and uh, vaginal sex. Don't have sex until his HIV RNA is less than 40 and undetectable. Um, resume sex using condoms to the best of their ability, but first have the uninfected woman begin to knock your FTC or something else. I have to answer her next Thursday, by the way. So. <laughs> I'll tell them I asked a whole bunch of experts. <laughs> ah, so. Uh, 40% said resume having sex using barriers for both oral and vaginal sex, and um, uh, almost 40% are going to actually give her tenofovir FTC. Um, who wants to answer this? I'm really, I'm really, I'm, this is, I mean, I'm not lying. This is like something I have to decide. Debra, you want to tell me what you would do? Um. I think essential here is the conversations with the right. two of them, because um, it is a, a complex discussion about the risk of Truvada over time. It's, they're both very young. Yeah. Um, it could be viewed that our hope would be that this would be a period of time until we have something better. Mm. Um, the chances certainly of transmission with an undetectable viral load in the man with vaginal oral sex with safe practices, and he's circumcised is quite low, but it's um, not zero, certainly. Um, and we, there is reasonable data. There is actually quite good data. The question to, really is a daily medicine for 
whatever period of time. So I would have a conversation, a long conversation. Right. <laughs> You're not helping me. Mike? I would, uh, I think I'd rely on the, the data that not just the study that showed that uh, earlier treatment led to reduced production, uh, the uh, reduced transmission. I mean, so there was, that was a 96% protection in the, um, in the study. And, but the one case it did transmit happened early before viral load was really undetectable. And so I think that that plus the Rakai data that a lot of people tend to look over, but back in 2000, Tom Quinn did a study of discordant couples in Uganda and showed that if the viral load as a group was below 1,200 or so, might have been 1,500, there was no transmission over a certain period of time and the higher viral loads transmitted. I think you put it all together, they've been married for a while, they have children already, the woman already is not infected and that's before the husband was on, on, um, on treatment. I would go with, with answer three with a modification that would say, um, it's unlikely he's going to transmit. I can't tell you that the likelihood is zero, but it's close to zero. And if you want to make it as close to zero as you can, use condoms, and that's up to you. But I would not give her tenofovir FTC. I think it's, uh, in my view, uh, this is not a high-risk situation for my judgment. That, that, so, Joe, do, do you think, though, that you can rely on the patient taking his drugs uh, without any break, because the question is for anybody. Yeah. The question, and now here's somebody who has a cognitive problem. Yeah. So, so you put the wife in charge of daily observed therapy. And well, she has, and they, they, you know, this is a really complicated case because he had to go on prednisone because of an iris, think about diabetes, he's gained like 80 pounds. I mean, it's just like there are a lot of things going on here, but um, uh, I think it's reliable that she is helping him take his medicine. I think that's a really important point. Um, I do think that um, uh, obviously he was not infected in August if he showed up with PML in September. So I think what Mike said is exactly right. I mean, they've been probably having unprotected sex for years with him being infected. And we do know that discordant couples, the risk of transmission goes down over time. I mean, it, it, the real risk is in that first, you know, several months. When, and and uh, so... I'm inclined, actually, to, to uh, and I don't know how long he'll float around. He had a pretty high viral load. I don't know how long he'll float below 40 but above detectable. Um, do, do people really tell their patients to use condoms with oral sex? Yes. We may, we may tell them, but what they do is, yeah. Pardon? Right, but, but, but nobody picked choice one. Not a, well, 8% did. You're one of the 8% that maybe picked choice one. I was going to go with choice one, I think, actually, to be honest with you. Um, that's probably what I'm going to go. I, I mean, I, I can't with a straight face tell people to use condoms. One, one I mean, can I, have one question and then we we'll have to wrap up. Can, yeah, I, yeah. can I add one thing quickly to, on this discussion? So she is on, um, I assume, hormonal contraception. Mm -hmm. And so if she were on an injectable contraceptive with the... Uh, kind of, you know, us not knowing clearly whether or not that increases risk of HIV acquisition. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that I, I might change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point.
it was, uh, there's a difference between significant and dramatic, I, I, I think. Sorry, I didn't know there was, but it was enough to make me Yeah. But that was in, but that was in partners who had high viral load, right? That's yeah. a partner with an undetectable virus. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, but it's a good, it's a good point, actually. Well, well taken. Last question. Could you guys just comment on that same question if it was an NSM couple? Uh, yeah, that's a, I, I'd probably give a, Similar answer. Um, uh, I mean, if they were a monogamous couple that, and they'd been together for this couple's been together for almost ten years, um, I think I'd probably give the same answer. Though, though obviously rectal sex is a much higher risk than than than, uh, than vaginal sex. Um, so I think, uh, and also might uh, depend on who's the insertive partner and if 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 they're you know if one is always insertive and that sort of thing. So. Uh, but I'd probably give the same answer. Um, well, so what, what are we going to do with that whole stack of questions? Well, I think we're at the post. Well, we, we, we do have a question period till quarter up, if I understand correctly. That's what the schedule says. Okay, here we go. Um, so, so we can, but I don't know what happened to that stack. Oh, no, we, we, got we have questions uh, here. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll start with these questions again. If somebody wants to uh, come up to the microphone. Uh, do we have any idea what the cost of the uh, fourth generation LISA is? I, I, I don't, honestly. Does, does anybody in the audience know? Okay. I'm well, sorry. I guess that's something Donna will have to post when we find out. So, uh, Mike, you're on. Yeah, is there any usefulness of HIV PCR for DNA for acute diagnosis? Um, I don't think it, I don't think it has any real value in, in acute diagnosis. Um, uh, I, I think PCR RNA is a more sensitive and more standard test, and more labs do it. So I don't think there's much value there. Obviously, it, it can have some value in um, uh, mother-to-child transmission, but I don't think it has much value in the acute HIV setting. What about starting an integrase inhibitor for primary therapy after acute infection and Will the integrase inhibitors be included in standard genotype? genotype yeah, so that's a great question. That was going to be one of the other cases. I, I, I should have um, used my time a little bit better. But um, so there's no uh, integrase inhibitor uh, test resistance testing is not recommended currently. Um, and unfortunately, nobody's doing any surveillance. So the CDC is not doing surveillance for integrase inhibitor resistance. So I'm not sure how we're going to know whether it's time to start doing integrase inhibitor uh, resistance testing. Um, you can order a test that um, will give you both uh, polymerase, RT and protease, and integrase resistance, but it's, it's in effect two separate tests. You're just, right. You can check one box. Um, we Did have not started doing it at our center, but we've talked about it um, quite a bit. I will say that there, uh, Henry asked about memorizing those, all those crazy numbers. There is a polymorphism um, that um, at, uh, at codon 97 of the integrase, for those of you who like stuff like that, I think it's T97A, that um, is at least on the true gene result, um, tells you that you have L-vitegravir resistance and probably raltegravir resistance. But it is a polymorphism. It's probably not a transmitted drug resistance mutation. And we actually had. Um, a case of that, and I didn't know, so I emailed Bob Schaefer and, and this guy Carlo Federico Perno in Italy, um, and they went through their databases and, and 
turned out Judy Aberg had two patients like that in New York that had the same mutation. Um, so I, I think sooner or later we're going to be, if you're going to start an integrase inhibitor, uh, sooner or later that will become standard. I just don't know when. Well, like I, Maybe you have some thoughts. I mean, maybe no. we should do it now. I, I don't know. Perhaps. I think one thing I wanted to make sure we got to, because we talked about it all day, is uh, the use, uh, when you have raltegravir resistance, what do you do? Because that was, I think, your last case, and we ought to at least try to cover some of that. So. Yeah. So, so let me just say a, a couple of words about dolutegravir. Um, many of you are, knew, already knew the answer, but dolutegravir does have activity against uh, viruses that have raltegravir and or elvitegravir resistance. Um, but it's certain mutations um, have little effect on uh, 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 dolutegravir activity, but some mutations, in particular 148, 140, have some effect. They decrease the activity of dolutegravir. Um, so uh, when you're, uh, if you are treating people that are integrase inhibitor experienced, dolutegravir will have activity, uh, but it may be partial activity depending on the mutation pattern. And when it is approved, if it is approved, it will be um, dosed twice daily in treatment experience patients, not once daily. So be dosed twice daily um, because you get better levels with twice daily dosing. Uh, it's actually an absorption issue. Um, but it does have activity. And um, now they will be able to download these slides. Donna, is that right? Um, they can download the cases now or, or when the conference is over. OK. Uh, after the meeting, you'll be able to download the case. The last three slides go over um, uh, uh, the effect of specific mutations on dolutegravir resistance. So it's a really good point. Um, There's another question about whether or not, uh, while you're waiting for a resistance testing, you could start four drugs rather than three. Yeah, I, I think that um, uh, the data for um, boosted protease inhibitors in the face of transmitted drug resistance is actually very, very good. There's a published paper by Whitkoff uh, in the Lancet last year um, that I think is very convincing that if you have transmitted drug resistance and you use a boosted protease inhibitor, um, that um, you get a, a, a very good result for, for the most part. Uh, and the likelihood of having uh, major protease inhibitor uh, mutations uh, that are transmitted is very, very low. It's, it's certainly, you know, 1% or less, probably less nowadays. Um, and the other question that comes up, what about the quad therapy? And it turns out um, they actually have very nice data. They did allow, in their one study that compared the quad with boosted azianivir, they actually did allow patients in that had NNRTI resistance. And, um, they actually have uh, quite a number of patients with NNRTI resistance who were treatment naive, and basically they saw the same response rate um, with the quad as um, uh, they did in patients with wild-type virus. So that is an option, and I think um, Sebley mentioned that our very first patient, um, perhaps a single tablet would have been good for him because he was a 20-something yeah, black gentleman that, that might do better with just a single pill. So I think probably the quad is reasonable in that setting. So there was one question about <clears throat> what did we talked about earlier intervention in an older person. What if you have somebody who's 30, CD4 count of 850, and a viral load that's uh, less than 200 off therapy? Uh, so less than 200. Yeah, so definitely like an elite controller. What do you do with that person? Yeah, um, well, I could say at our site we would enroll them in a clinical trial. Because uh, <laughs> there is an ACTG clinical trial that's investigating whether treating those patients has an impact on 
um, the inflammatory markers that um, uh, uh, Mike and Henry and uh, uh, Deborah talked about. Uh, I think it's a very, very tough decision. Um, I, my own belief is that uh, they're probably better off treated, um, and I think that I would try to convince the patient that taking a single pill once a day is probably in their best interest over the very long term. And, but if it took them uh, time to decide that, I don't think that would be a big issue. Like if we had to meet and go over it over six months or something like that. I think. But I, I, I would be in favor of treating that person, but I would be very accepting if they felt that they weren't ready. That's how I would deal with it. All right. All right. Very good. Thank you very much. Thanks.